We're going to, um, now we're going to look at God's word. We're going to look at a passage from 1 Kings chapter 19. And uh, the words, uh, the passage should come up behind me, but I'm going to read it out. This morning's talk is called Passing on the Baton. I was really encouraged, actually, because um, I'd ordered a book, a book by Greg Haslam, actually, uh, who used to be, uh, many years ago, used to lead the church here. And he wrote a book about Elisha, and I knew he'd written it, and I couldn't get hold of it because um, it was out of print. But I managed to get a, a, a copy, a second-hand copy, and it came on Friday, and I'd already prepared what I was going to say. I'd already told Lois what the title was, and his, his, uh, his title for this chapter, where he talks about this incident, was called was Passing on the Baton, so I was mightily encouraged. So I can't be, if Greg Haslam says that's what it's about, I can't be that far wrong. So 1 Kings chapter 19, this is what it says at verse 15. The Lord said to him, that's Elijah, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Maloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. In Spain, in a place called uh, Valladolid, there stands a monument to the great explorer Christopher Columbus. And it's a really interesting feature. And part of it uh, is a a statue of a lion destroying uh, a word, a Latin word. You know, when Columbus uh, sailed, left Spain, and uh, went and discovered the New World, he sailed through unknown waters to an unknown destination. And at the time that he did that, uh, the Spanish standards, their flags and banners, carried three words in Latin. And those three words were, ni plus ultra, no more beyond. That was the... Uh, That was the phrase that was written across the Spanish flag. No more beyond. The world was convinced there was nothing more beyond that uh, that they'd already, the the world they'd discovered. Columbus was, uh, was not convinced that was the case. And so he set out into uncharted territory to, and actually discovered uh, the new world. And he discovered a land of wealth. An opportunity, and as a result of his boldness and his courage, the world was forever changed. 
So much so that the king of Spain changed the Spanish motto. And he took the first word away. He took ne, ne, N-E, out of that phrase. So it just became plus, ultra, more beyond. And so this statue is of a lion destroying this first word, ne, no. Because there was more beyond. There was more to come. You know, Elijah had reached what he thought was the end. He thought there was no more beyond for him. He'd assumed that victory on Mount Carmel, that you read about in chapter 18, would bring about lasting change. But to his disappointment, the people's turning back to God lasted about as long as the morning mist. What was worse, King Ahab's wife Jezebel was so angry with Elijah that she literally put a contract out on his life, determined to assassinate him. And over the last few weeks, we've seen how a depressed and despairing Elijah ran for his life. And we've read and we've seen and studied how God takes him back to basics at Mount Horeb. And instead of giving him a dressing down, lovingly restores him and takes him into new territory. Like Elijah, we often have fixed ideas about what should God should do and when he should do it. I remember many years ago as a student going to a church on a Sunday morning and I was actually waiting for a bus on the avenue in Southampton. And I was late and I prayed, God, please send the bus. I need to want to get to church on time. And I was there, I thought in good time. And I was there for ages waiting and nothing was coming. I was looking up the avenue, there was nothing. And in my heart, I was starting to moan and complain. Oh God, I, you know, I left in plenty of time. Why can't you send a bus along? Why isn't there? Why isn't a bus coming? And I was really grumbling and moaning in my heart. And uh, suddenly... I was looking up the avenue, there was nothing coming. I was thinking, oh, I'm never going to get there, never going to get there in time. Oh, what's the point? I may as well go back. And then suddenly, out of the corner of my eye, just off a side road, this bus comes. Totally unexpected. Wasn't expecting a bus to come in that direction. Comes, stops, I get on the bus and I get there in time. Now, that's a, a silly little example. But sometimes we're like that with God. We have expectations about how God is going to work. And when God doesn't work in the way that uh, we expect him to work, we get frustrated. We get angry. We start questioning him and his purposes. We need to understand that God is still on the throne and will fulfill his purposes. You see, I'm thought Elijah would have, I'm sure Elijah would have thought, such things as this. How can God allow such things like, as this to go on amongst his people? Why doesn't he remove Ahab and Jezebel from the scene? They are such wicked people. Why doesn't he take them out? Why doesn't he remove them from office? Why doesn't he do that? Doesn't God care about his reputation? Doesn't God care about his people? What Elijah was about to find out was that God dramatically was about to change the situation. I don't know if you've read the book The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. In it you see a world which has been under the control of the white witch for uh, a long time. And throughout that period of her reign where she's in control... 
It's always winter and it's never summer. And the land is frozen. And uh, as the, uh, the plot unfolds, we hear the phrase, Aslan is on the move. Aslan, the great king of Narnia. Aslan, who, uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, when C.S. Lewis is writing, it's, uh, it's an image, a metaphor for Jesus. That's what he was writing. He was writing about the Christian message. But Aslan speaks of Jesus. He says, Aslan is on the move. And as they hear that message, and as that message starts to be whispered across the countryside, change starts to happen. Suddenly, all around them, they see the frost and the ice melting. And they know that spring is coming. Summer will soon be there. Winter is over. You know, as a church... We believe that spring is coming. It was wonderful having Julian Adams here with us last week. And he was prophesying that there's going to be a time of breakthrough. We feel it, don't we? We feel that there's a change. That God's on the move. That God's doing something amongst us. And it's very, very exciting. You know, God speaks to Elijah. And he tells him that there's going to be a changing of the guard. Three things are going to happen. First of all, there's going to be a reckoning with sin. Ahab and Jezebel will be removed from the scene and a new king will be installed. You know, when God is on the move, there is always a reckoning with sin. Things that have seemingly been left, like Ahab and Jezebel, will be dealt with. It's a scary thing. God hates Sin. The sad thing is that all too many take take God's grace and patience as a sign that God is indifferent to their actions. And so they carry on or they never deal with the issues in their own hearts. Ananias and Sapphira that you read about in Acts chapter 5 are examples of that. Sin in their own hearts and God's on the move and, and uh, they get caught out because they've never dealt with the issues, allowed God to deal with the issues in their own heart. Let me urge you this morning, don't play fast and loose with the grace of God. God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's what Titus tells, Paul tells Titus in Titus 2 verse 12. When God is on the move, bringing about change, we can expect him to deal with sin. There was a reckoning with sin, but secondly, there was a removal of people from office. The political climate was about to change. God had had enough. Ahab and Ben-Hadad, who was the ruler of Aram, the Aramean Empire, they were about to be replaced. The one thing to note is their replacements, Jehu and Haziel, turned out to be no better. You remember at the turn of the year, John reminded us that political change will not change this nation's problems. Lasting change can only come from a move of God. And that's what we want. We want a move of God in these days that turns people's hearts back to him. So we see a reckoning with sin, a removal of people from office. And thirdly, we see a raising up of new leaders. And namely, that's Elisha, 
son of Shaphat. Elijah needed reminding that there were many others still committed to serving God. In fact, there were 7,000. Elijah thought there were none. This is a day when God wants us to raise up and mobilize new leaders. You know, this isn't a race. The Christian life, church life, isn't a race for individuals. We run this race together. This is a relay race. And what we see in front of us, metaphorically, is a relay race. And Elijah's been running a relay race and he's running with a baton. But he's coming to a point where he needs to transition and hand over the baton to Elisha. And there's that period where they run together, where Elijah's running hard and Elisha's limbering up and he's, uh, he's starting to get ready. He's starting to run and then they run together for a period and then Elisha runs off and Elijah uh, has transitioned and he's, uh, he comes to the end of his ministry. That's what we're reading about in this passage. It's a, it's a passage all about passing on the baton. It's all about raising up new leaders of people, learning to run with God and run hard for him. And I believe God wants to encourage us this morning because all of us have a part to play in his purposes in the days ahead. And I want to draw out very quickly three things that I want us to consider. The first thing for us to note is this. In verse 16, that God calls. God calls. That's a real encouragement for us. It's God who calls us. He calls us by his grace. You know, Elisha wasn't a household name. If a rumour had started that Elijah was looking for a successor, the bookies wouldn't have given you uh, good odds on it being Elisha. They hadn't heard of him. Elijah, I don't believe Elijah had heard of him. That's why God has to literally give him his name, his parents' name and his address. Because how would he find him otherwise? I don't believe that Elijah had come across Elisha before. Numbers of you would have, I mean I know you did because I heard some of the things that were said when uh, John announced that Steve Chick's coming here to uh, lead Winchester Family Church. Loads of you went, who? Steve who? Some of you are probably still saying that now. I'm Steve Chick, by the way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> See, the wonderful thing is, it's a call of grace. It's grace from the very beginning. You see, when God looks down on us and our lives are in a terrible mess, we were considering it this morning. You know, we were far from God. But God, by his grace, casts his eye on us and he calls us and he draws us to himself. That's how we get saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never really given God much thought. Let me say, God is graciously calling you to turn to him this morning. God calls us by grace. It's a, it's a grace call. And the Bible has many examples of that. Who could imagine that God would have called Saul of Tarsus? He uh, was set about, he was determined to murder Christians, to put uh, the church in jail, to finish the church off. And yet as he's going along the Damascus road one day, Jesus appears to him in a bright light and suddenly this man who's going in one direction, suddenly his life is turned around because God has graciously called him. 
If you feel this morning you're unworthy, that you can't make it, let me tell you, you're on the right track. Because it's all about God's grace, not about your abilities. Hallelujah, that's good news. See, God calls ordinary people. He calls ordinary people like you and me. Elijah was a man just like us, we're told in James chapter 5. And so was Elisha. They had different backgrounds, but they were ordinary men. Elisha, we read, he was a man who worked with his hands, worked with animals. He was unusual in the way he looked. He was bald. There weren't many bald people in Israel in those days. And we're told that he was bald. And you can read, there's a story in Two Kings about how people mock him because of his appearance. So some of you can be really encouraged this morning. God chooses ordinary bald people. Hallelujah. It's good news. God calls ordinary people. Whatever your background, however ordinary you feel, God wants to use you. Hallelujah. You know, and his call is supernatural. It was nothing to do with Elijah and Elisha. They had a a little part to play in it, but it was all about God. There are things that God has for you to do. There are plans in God's heart for each one of you. Greg Haslam in his book on Elisha says this, and I managed to lift this out on uh, Friday. says this, God calls us to be teachers, writers, town planners, designers of software, nurses, secretaries, economists and soldiers. The options are endless. However, the important questions are these. Are you sure you are God's man or woman in that situation? Are you acting as though you are? God wants you to be sure that his call is on your life. That what you're doing is what he's called you to do at this moment. There may be other things ahead of you, but are you sure that God's call is on your life? Whatever you're doing at the moment, wherever you're working, whatever college you're in, whatever school you're in, God's call is on you. God wants you to know that. He wants to be sure of that. So when times get difficult, you can know without a shadow of a doubt, I'm in the right place because God has called me here. This is where I'm meant to be. You can be confident because you know his supernatural call is on your life. Also, his call is sudden. You know, for Elisha, this was just like any other day. Just going out into the fields with the oxen. Maybe one day he dreamed that he would uh, serve God in some way. Maybe he knew deep down. I tend to believe that he did. I think Elisha knew that one day he would do something for God. Can't be certain, but I tend to believe that. Maybe he had no idea. Maybe he had no idea what was about to happen. But I think he had some, deep down, he, he wanted to do exploits for God. But whatever the truth, in a moment... Everything changed. The Bible is full of suddenlies. Just shared one with you about Paul on the, Saul on the Damascus Road. Suddenly, it says, God appears to him. Suddenly it all changes. I remember over uh, about a year ago, Annette saying to me, and uh, we were wondering what God was calling us to, where, how it was going to work out. And Annette just said to me, she just said, Steve, God is going to do this suddenly. And there was one moment, there was... One Saturday morning, I was in the house and I got a phone call. It was a suddenly moment. God suddenly came and it all changed. Everything changed in a moment because God came. 
Maybe today is your day. Maybe today is your day. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe today is your day. Maybe you've been waiting for a moment when God will open up a new door for you, whether it be a new job, a new opportunity to serve him. Maybe you're looking, you're thinking in terms of church planting, whatever it is. How do you handle the waiting? Well, we see some, in Elisha some great qualities. We can seek to emulate him. He didn't have his head in the clouds dreaming about what would happen in the future. He worked hard. He got on with God, what God had set before him. He did his job very well. He did it to the best of his ability. We can know that. No one would have given him 12 pairs of oxen to look after if he wasn't doing his job well. Let me encourage you to get on with what God has given you to do. Don't spend your days half-heartedly doing what God set before you. Do it well. Honour God in the way that you do the mundane. Whether it be your schoolwork, whether it be your assignments, whether it be doing the tasks, the unglamorous uh, uh, tasks in work that nobody else wants to do but fall to you to do. Maybe it's stuff in the church that no one else does, no one else sees, putting out chairs, cleaning toilets, setting up for the soup kitchen, cooking food. Let me encourage you to be people who do it to the best of your ability before God. Serve wholeheartedly, Paul tells the Ephesians, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. That's how you prepare. That's how you get ready for what God's calling you for. And as you're faithful with little, God will give you more responsibility in the days ahead. So God calls But when God calls, God equips. We see that in verse 19. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a DIY disaster error. I've had several DIY disasters over the last few weeks, and most of them revolve around me not having the right equipment. And uh, this week, I was trying to take the toilet seat off and, um, and replace it. And it's a really simple task. If you know anything about it, you know there's a couple of uh, things, widgets, I don't know what they are, screws or whatever, something like that. And you twist them and you take, take them off. And um, I, could, I mean, I said to her, I was, a couple of minutes, and so Annette knew. When, when I say a couple of minutes, she goes downstairs and stays out of the way for about an hour. And um, so uh, after about half an hour, it, wasn't, it just wasn't happening. So in the end, I've got a hacksaw, and I'm just soaring And in the end, that won't work. So in the end, I just yanked it. I ripped the whole thing and snapped all the metal bits on it because I just couldn't get it off. The reality was, I just didn't have the right equipment. Didn't have the right equipment. Whenever God calls people, he equips them. You know, Elijah doesn't turn up to Elisha and say, right, you're now prophet to the nation. I'm off. See you, mate. And just leave him. No, he doesn't. A.W. Pink says this. He says that the casting of the mantle on Elisha was indicative of his investiture with the prophetic office and a sign of friendship that he would take him under his care and tuition. We see two ways in this. 
that God equips us for the task that he calls us to do. The first is this, it's anointing. God anoints. We see that Elijah throws his mantle on Elisha. It's a sign that God's presence prophetically was going to be on Elisha. God gives gifts. When we become Christians, God's spirit comes on us and enables us to live for God. Otherwise, it would be impossible. We can't live for God without his spirit on us. We can't do anything for God unless God's spirit is on us. We need his Holy Spirit. God in, equips us supernaturally to, call, to do what he's called us to do. Now that doesn't mean that God's going to come suddenly and give you the most spectacular singing voice so that you can join the worship team. He may do, but I doubt it. I don't think that's going to happen. Normally, normally, God takes our abilities, and they're the abilities that he's given us, and he hones them and uses them for his purpose. You see, when someone's anointed, it's obvious. Now, they may not be the best musician. They may not be the best singer. But because God's anointing on them, wow, they just seem to bring God's presence when they lead worship. You see, you may, uh, you may be anointed in all sorts of areas, you may not be the best cook, but you may be anointed in hospitality. So that when people walk into your home, you may not have produced the best meal, but people immediately feel at home. God anoints. God equips. God enables us. If we're going to serve him and do what he, he's called us to do, he anoints us and equips us to do that. For some people, it's about making people feel welcome. Some people just have the ability to talk to people. For others of us, it's hard, but there's just, for some people, there's anointing. And people just seem to open up to them. And it's really important that you have the measure of the gift that you have. It says this in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think of yourself with so sober judgment. There are too many people who uh, think they're called, they, they've got a very high opinion of themselves. I remember some years ago camping at a, 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 a Christian uh, Bible week, and hearing someone talk in a caravan, I could hear them talking, it was late at night, and I was in my tent, and they were talking about a, 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 Christ, a guy who ministers particularly in Africa called Reinhard Bonker, and uh, he ministers to tens, hundreds of thousands of people at a time. And this is what the person in the caravan was saying. He said, that's all right for Reinhard Bonker, he's just had the brakes. If I had the brakes, I could do that. You know, some people do not have a measure of their own gift. Don't, don't elevate yourself in your own thinking. Be humble before God. See, too many people want to be something that God's not calling them to be, whether that's in work or in church. There are some people who want to be apostolic, and they're not. They're never going to be apostolic. There's some people who think they're prophetic and, and they're not going to be. God's got something else for them, but they're so set on being this one thing that everything else is irrelevant. They've just not got a measure of the gift that God has for them. So if God's calling you to do something, 
be assured of this. God will gift you to do it. But if you're not called to do that, don't be worried about it. Because God's got better things for you to do. Hallelujah. So God anoints. But he also disciples. You see, when Elijah puts his cloak around Elisha, he's effectively saying to Elisha, come with me and I will train you. And that's what Jesus said to his first disciples, wasn't it? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so Jesus didn't wave a magic wand over them and suddenly they were equipped to do the task. They spent three years with Jesus, learning from him, watching him, listening to him, Jesus correcting them, talking them, instructing them, helping them. They watched it all firsthand before he released them to go and have it a go themselves. Then they came back and reported what had happened. There was a whole discipleship, a whole training process that went on. And that's what was happening with Elijah and Elisha. It said they spent ten years together. And where Elisha was being trained by Elijah. You see, discipleship is based on relationship. You know, at the end of uh, Elijah's time, Elisha isn't saying, come on, Elijah, get out of the way. The old man, it's time for the old man to move over. It's time for the younger man, me, to come through. When Elijah moves off the scene, Elisha is heartbroken because he has to relate. It's about relationship. Discipleship is about relationship. Discipleship is about serving. We see Elisha becomes Elijah's servant, assistant. He carried his bags. It was said of Elisha, we read in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, that he used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Terry Virgo explains it like this. What a strange phrase. What would have happened was Elijah would have washed his hands. Imagine he washes his hands with soap. He's got, oh, he's got soap all over his hands. So what am I going to do now? How am I going to get this off? Elisha comes along and he pours water over his hands. That's what he did. He was a water pourer. He was prepared to do that. He was prepared to just be a servant. That's what discipleship is about. It's about serving. He didn't have an attitude. I'm called to be a prophet. That's beneath me. I'm not going to do that. He was humble. James tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter adds, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. As you humble yourself before God, it's God who elevates, it's God who promotes. It it was God who lifted Elisha fully into ministry. It wasn't Elisha, it was God who did it. Because he humbled himself, God elevated him. Discipleship is about learning. Elisha had a teachable spirit. He listened to Elijah's wisdom. And it's not surprising then that as you compare their lives and ministries, there are lots of similarities in the things they did and the way they did them. You know, I've, uh, over the years, been involved and had a part to play in discipling lots of people. And numbers of them now are, uh, there's people I can think of who are now working full-time for churches. There are those who are part of eldership teams. There are those who've gone to church plants. There are those who are involved in significant areas of ministry. And God has done it. God has elevated them. They humbled themselves under God's mighty hand. And in the right time, God promoted them. God wants us to be people 
who are disciples and disciplers. There are, I want to say this, there are lots of people here who are um, perhaps older in years. You have much experience to pass on to younger generations. God wants you to be fathers and mothers to many. God wants to encourage you to do that. He wants you to be trainers of younger people. Young people, he wants you to be those in your, uh, eight, in your teens and 20s and early 30s, to be those who are willing to be discipled. You know, there's lots of ways of doing it, one-to-one. Spending time with someone, praying, listening to their wisdom, studying the Word of God together. There's lots of courses like Our High Calling. I mean, there are, that's a great discipleship course. The marriage course, freedom in Christ. Lots of ways that you can be discipled. You can do training. Uh, go on training. New Frontiers do a, a training program at Frontier Impact. And there's uh, Jess and Lorena are doing that at the moment, doing a great job on it, really enjoying it. Uh, it been a real blessing to us in the church. You can do that. If you want to take a gap year at the end of... Uh, uh, your university degree or before you go to university that's a great way to serve God it doesn't have to be New Frontiers Abs Millwood has gone off with YWAM Youth with a Mission they do a great training program God is doing is wanting to train us up so that we can be really fruitful for him you know God wants us to be discipled So it's God who calls, God who equips, and finally it's God who expects us to respond. Elisha's response to the call of God is nothing less than remarkable. There's much we can learn from uh, what he did and how he did it. First of all, he counted the cost. You know, Elisha clearly loved and respected his parents. He knew he'd have to say goodbye to them to follow Elijah. It's very likely he was from a wealthy family. I mean, not many families in those days would have had so many oxen. And so to follow Elijah was going to mean leaving all the privileges that he enjoyed. You know, there is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus himself said this. He said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, will he first not sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? What Jesus was saying is, if you want to be my follower, you need to count the cost. It's worth it. It's a cost worth paying, but there is a cost to pay. There are things that need to be left behind if you're going to live for me. Maybe this morning, God's speaking to you. Maybe this is your day. God's calling you. Jesus is saying, count the cost. Count the cost. Elisha counted the cost. He was prepared to leave his parents behind. His parents were prepared to let go of him. For some of us as parents, we need to be, we we hold our children lightly. They don't belong to us. We have them for a short season. And so sometimes it's hard to let go. And so we need to let go with faith and believe that and pray for them, knowing that God's hands on them. We need to be those who count the cost. When I left Swansea in 1988, there was a cost for my mother. She was miles, I was miles away when my dad died. 
I wasn't at the doorstep. I, it, it, I, it took hours for me to get home. My mum always wished she lived closer to us because she missed seeing her grandchildren. She missed seeing them regularly. I mean, we did spend time with her, but she missed it. it was a, there was a cost to me serving God. Do you know what? I believe it was a cost that was worth paying. It was a price worth paying. And if my mum was alive today, I believe she would say the same. It, it, was a, it did cost, but it was a price worth paying. And eternity, eternity will tell the value of it. We also see that he counted the cost, but he also wasn't going back. In verse 21, we see Elisha knew this was the, old, the end of his old way of life. He didn't try to keep a foot in both camps. He cut his ties with his old way of life. He burnt his plowing equipment and had a barbecue with the oxen. There was no going back. It's a picture of, it's like a, when someone becomes a, a Christian, it's a picture of baptism. There's no going back. The end to the old, the entering of the new. We're having a baptism, so maybe you've not been baptised. You need to be baptised. It's a significant moment in your uh, walk with Christ. It's about being obedient to him. It's about the end of the old and entering fully into the new. In April, 21st of April, 1519, Hernando Cortez landed near Vera Cruz in what's now the Mexican part of what was then the Aztec Empire. His aim was to conquer the Aztec Empire for Spain, and for the King of Spain. And uh, his army was outnumbered by about 300 to 1. And in in order to ensure the loyalty of his troops, and to ensure that they would stay with him and would press through, Cortes burnt his boats. He burnt the boats in front of his men, On the beach that day, he burnt his boats. His men knew that as the boats were burnt, there was no going back. It was conquer or die. God loves that kind of faith. That's the sort of faith we see with Elisha. I am not going back. I'm giving up everything for this. I'm going to do this heart and soul. I'm not going to keep the oxen and or maybe, maybe, just in case it doesn't work out, I can go back. He was soul, heart and soul into the work of God. God wants us to be totally dependent on him. He wants us to be people who know that unless he shows up, we're finished. Be encouraged. God never lets us down. And finally we just see his response was one of joy. There was sacrifice in this offering. There was great joy. There was a party. As he was giving up, it wasn't with a, with a miserable face and a grump and, oh, poor old me, I'm going to have a tough old time or oh, I better stoically press on. He sacrificed his offering. He threw a barbecue. They had a great big party. There was joy in this sacrifice. There was joy. He knew that God's call was on. He was so excited. When Jesus went to the cross, it says it was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. It was for the joy. There was joy in his heart. 
Okay, it was a tough, the toughest moment. But deep down in his heart, there was joy in the heart of the Lord Jesus when he went to the cross for you and for me. Because he knew that he would bring many sons to glory by his sacrifice. And it was a price worth paying. You know, when you're called of God, when God calls you, he equips you. But he wants you to respond with joy. Hallelujah. You see, God cares about people. It's people God cares about. It's not tasks. It's people. And so, as we finish this morning, I want to challenge you. What's God calling you to? Maybe this morning he's calling you to faith. Maybe he's saying to you, you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus. God is saying, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me. Give your life to me. Put your trust in Jesus, what Jesus has done on the cross for you. When he took your punishment for sin. The things that you'd done wrong. Your wrongdoings. He did it for you. When he rose from the dead, he conquered death. That you might have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Maybe today is your day to give your life to Jesus Christ. Burn your boats today. Count the cost today. It's worth it. What's God calling you to do? What's God calling you to do? Let me just throw a few things out. What is in your heart? What do you want to do? What do you enjoy doing? What are you good at? What do other people think you're good at? Not what you think you're good at. Spend some time. Get before God. Ask other people. If God is calling you, he will equip you by his spirit. And he will train you. Let's be a people who are disciplers. Willing to be discipled. Maybe you need to find someone to disciple you, to disciple you as a young person. As an older person, maybe you ought to be looking for someone that you can disciple. If God is calling, he will equip. You see, the key is we need to respond to God's call. You see, the motto's changed. No more beyond is finished with. It's more beyond. There is more for you. God has more for you. Plus ultra. There is more for you to do in God. You're not finished. God has more for you. Do you believe that? He's got more for you to do.